minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Blast off. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Desolation Radio. It's me, your boy, Dan Evans. And me, your estranged uncle, Nathan. <laughs> What's up, player? Not much. Uh, we haven't seen each other for how many years now? That's a good while, man. This must be a month, nearly? Yeah, I think so. What have um, you been up to? I went to Croatia, which is my favourite fascist holiday destination. So thank you to everyone that gives Beats us... Beats Turkey, my... does it? I've never been to Turkey. I've been to Istanbul Airport. Yeah. Dipped your toe in. But yeah, I reckon Croatia's the greatest. It's, a, it's, a, it's amazing. So thanks to everyone that gives us money on Patreon for paying for my five-star holiday and for keeping us in, you know, weed and pizza. It's really mm. means a lot. Yeah, I appreciate it. Well, there was that guy, wasn't there? The, remember, like, um, he was genuinely like, oh, you only do this podcast to to make loads of money and, like, promote your name and things like that. Like, yeah, why else would you do it? Exactly. We just, would, like, yeah, we decided true. what we wanted and then, like, we the best way to go through it. And we like, we just did it. Well, it was going to be like a woodwork podcast, but we didn't. No money in that. No, there's not. There's only a lot of money in YouTube uh, woodwork videos, but that uh, market's been cornered already. I feel like you've just, before I've come over, you've just been watching woodwork videos. And I, <laughs> I did do that for a week, like just trying to learn all the different joints and things. I did a course, you know, when I was in uh, Bangor, I did a, a course of learning like the old ways, like before. Of a samurai. Before, but yeah, but for carpentry. Yeah. I did it a week. It was good. Yeah. Learned how to make dovetail joints. Oh, did you? Um, couldn't, couldn't do it now. I um, I recently bought a woodworking book off Amazon that I, I haven't really read yet. But The guy who plays the main character in Parks and Rec. Nick Offerman. Yeah, he's like a professional yeah. artisan or woodworker, isn't he? As is Harrison Ford. No way. When yeah, he built his own memory. horse. Yeah, well, what happened? Built his own house. No, he didn't build his own horse. So he was trying to make as an actor, working as a carpenter. And he's like, oh. That also happens in those handsome carpenter of all time. Yeah, I'm going to jack it in, uh, acting that is. And then he was uh, installing cabinets or something in George Lucas's house. Somebody didn't turn up for a hand solo reading. He went in. Or initially, he was used just for the other characters. I don't actually believe that luck can be that good, though. You know what I mean? It's just. Yeah. It's it's almost it's just you couldn't write something like that. No, I, and apparently it happened. And you know um, who else auditioned? Crystal Walken. He auditioned for Han Solo. So did Kurt Russell and uh, Harrison Ford. Walken has, has Han Solo be amazing? Yeah. Hey, Chewy, get us out of here. He kept the lightsaber up his ass. <laughs> this is your father's lightsaber. He smuggled it out of in his ass. Okay. Uh. Right. What's uh, happened in Wales this oh man, pe- on, honestly, period of time? On a, like, being in Croatia was, I don't know, it was awesome. And, and like so much shit, like awful shit just keeps happening in Wales. Like it's just gone into absolute overdrive. Um, first thing is that like Alan Cairns is basically, well, you know, like when Bush was in the now watch this drive mode where he's just like, I don't, yeah. just don't care about you. Cairns is just like openly trolling people. It's hilarious. Mm-hmm. So first there was like the bridge that, you know, the Prince of Wales bridge. Now he's like pulled the Swansea Tidal Lagoon, said it's like not cost effective, and instead he's given like the go ahead to nuclear. And obviously, as part of the, this like new nuclear deal, like Ken Skates, like the Welsh Government Economy Secretary, is like 
rolled out the red carpet for it and just said, I welcome this. This is awesome. Like, thank you very much. And it's just. I like, welcome our new nuclear overlords. But I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, I said, I think on Twitter, but we've got generally, like, we're going into the worst, hardest periods in Wales' history with easily, easily the worst government and worst people in charge that you could possibly imagine. Like, Ken Skates is. How do you describe him? I mean, he, everything he does just turns to shit. Like, he's. I've never seen anyone so out of their depth. Well, apart from Theresa May, but. And Alan Cairns, best more No, but, but, the, but the, this is the thing, right? Cairns is like a classic sort of colonial um, Secretary of State because there are jobs, right? There are jobs going for the Secretary of State for Wales. And I looked at one and it literally says your job is to promote the interest of the British government in Wales. So it's like, you know, you're Westminster's man in Wales doing Westminster's bidding. You're not, you know, whereas traditionally you were meant to be, you know, it was thought of you would be the, the man, the Welsh guy in Westminster. Well, that's you know, what we've always said, for. isn't it? That you can't really be mad at him because he's basically doing his job. Yeah, and, and he's just and obsequ- committed to something yeah. he believes in. He's a obsequious little troll who loves being like, literally loves like the line, like loves being like Theresa May's like little right hand man. And he loves li- like literally being like a little gimp. But he, he but he literally, he's there to do the bidding of Westminster. And he's obsessed with the union. He's obsessed, he's obsessed with drawing Wales like closer into the the union as as we've seen with his obsessive talk about building like cross border links talking about like seven side building links between north wales and like the northwest of england and he talks about it all the time like it's like a tick but as we said we know he's going to do that we know the toy is going to shaft Wales. but you've got ken skates who's just everything he does is is subservient is servile is like thanking people because like ken i mean fair play to ken's like they did this thing like the welsh office in london is going to fly like the England flag for the World Cup. But Ethan Morgan Jones was saying, like, traditionally the Welsh office has two Union Jacks on it and one Welsh flag. <laughs> what they've done, they've just taken, rather than like take down one of the Union Jacks and have a Union Jack, an England flag, and a Welsh flag, they've just taken down the Welsh flag. <laughs> so they've got two Union Jacks and one England flag. And like, fair play, man. Cairns is just like, you know, that's what he believes. But the worst thing about the whole thing is that, like, the, the Welsh Labour government are. Oh yeah, that's right. Plied past a vote of no confidence in Cairns. Yeah, we would say it, it and was, Labour were like, no, like that's too strong. It, it was Let's. a it was a symbolic vote as well. Had it passed, it would mean nothing. But to the point of like saying like, listen, just you know, vote with Plied. It's symbolic. It literally. No, and then in fact, nope. the, the site is you've got like all these Labour AMs like falling over each other on like Twitter to like criticise Plied for like even trying something like that. It's just unbelievable, and you've got. You've got people who I like follow on Twitter who are like, the biggest like Labour bots, you know, uncritical Labour people who are like, uh, actually, like, why are we supporting Alan Cairns? But I, I don't know. I mean, they're, they're so deeply committed to the union, like, no matter what, no matter what circumstances change, no matter what terrible things happen, that's always going to f- come first. But it always, like, um, you know, this stuff always happens. Like, like we're saying, it's no surprise. But st- still, everyone's acting like Charlie Brown about to kick the football. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, oh, wait, uh, what? How- I know. Uh, and there are people saying like, "Oh wow, this is like the final straw." I mean, come on, man, this like. But I, I did say. I mean, we have argued previously that like what we're going to see pre and well, it's not even Brexit hasn't even happened, but certainly post Brexit, we're going to see. Danny def- Dyer is now but, but announced de- Brexit, <laughs> but definitely a rolling back of devolution. But also, you'll see the anti-devolution sentiment and like hardcore unionism becoming like far more prominent. So like. I'm so gutted because this article I wrote in for Capital and Class, which you know I will put out when it gets published. But in the original, I said you know it's it's very likely in future that you know devolution could be reversed and Wales is going to you know 
go further and further into this like English orbit rather than move further and further away. And the reviewer was like, hmm, I think don't think this is likely. And I was like, okay, I want to get it published. So I was like, uh, okay. I was like, yeah. So I said, it's you know, it's probably unlikely that's going to happen. Like complete, as in, it's unlikely that devolution could be scrapped and the assembly abolished. But I mean, you see, we see now, like you know, anti-Welsh language sentiment is becoming far more prominent. These are dark days, my friend. What else happened? Dark days in such a, a glorious summer. It's particularly the case in Wales. This is like we're seeing the logical chaotic endpoint of one partyism when you've got like a complete generation of people who are who are only in the role because they're in the Labour Party. So their only thing that they've ever done well is be loyal to the Labour Party. Or I mean, be, this be mates for the right people. And yeah, shut up, toe the line. You know, all you got to do in Wales is win the nomination for the you know the CLP or whatever, and you're going to be you're going to get the seat. But it, it it's now coming to this like awful, tragic, like farcical, Kafkaesque consequences because we're actually in this massive existential crisis in Brexit, and you've got people in charge who are just like just complete dullards who are just complete like you know you, you're sending them to London to like negotiate with with adults. Mm. I want to say you know like professional smart people you know e- smart evil people in the conservative party in westminster and he's sending you know Car- sending the work experience Car- kids over yeah, like- you know carwin Car- Car- jones carwin jones is like you know at best like a rugby club chairman mm. like you know that's what that's a good way of putting it actually but if he wasn't in wales you know that's where he would be you know they wouldn't be they'd be a bad local councillor yeah and yet he's a first minister of the country but- ken skates is the, like the, he's actually in charge of the welsh economy it's just well, that's the thing that we've always said, isn't it? Like, um, you know, it is uh, Welsh Assembly or Welsh politics does operate like a giant or like a council on a bigger it's stage. It's just awful. Mm. It's just awful. What else has happened? Well, um, you're mentioning about people just towing the line and um, say what they, uh, you know, what needs to be said to get going. Hugh Aranga Davis has thrown uh-huh. his, uh, his hat into the political ring. Speaking of someone with no values or talent, and a weird goatee. Well, like Hugh Ranker Davis, obviously, like he's a beard, but he's our AM, isn't he? Came to my house, but right. I mean, like Hugh Ranker Davis has been an MP, so he's got this like gravitas. But like he's doing then this thing that Leonard Morgan did, which he's like, you know, time for her, like some, you know, let's have a consultation. And when people have like consultations, I remember like Ply did it back in the day. They were like, oh, let's like get like a thousand ideas or something like that. That I could see as something as you know that that's a way of engage, actually trying to engage people in the democratic process. And you know, bring decision making close to the people. But people like Hugh Ranga Davis and Leonard Morgan do it because they literally haven't got any policies or values or ideas at all. Didn't so, Leonard Morgan literally say, oh, um, "What I believe, it, basically the same as Mark Drakeford"? I, I, I'm identical to Mark Drakeford. Yeah. Um, but Ranga Davis is like you know accosting people in like the ruin, Bridgend. Like, listen, um, have you got any ideas for like politics? Because I I don't believe in anything really. I mean, or, it, it's just wild. And, and and the problem with one partyism is that people in the Labour Party in Wales. Do not come from what I want. To, I want to say like a socialist Labour background. Like so, they sort of stumble upon ideas. You know, that like people who are socialists or who have read stuff on politics is like their bread and butter. And like Welsh Labour sort of gradually get there and go like, oh, what, what about like what about free childcare? Like would that be something? It's like, but you've, yeah, you've got these people, these absolute cyborgs going for the Welsh Labour leadership. I mean, people think it's going to be Drakeford, but what I think here's what I think is going to happen with the Welsh Labour leadership. I think that. Vaughan Gethin has now like made his pitch that he's going to be the person that defends the status quo, like as it is now. So he's going to be the one that defends the electoral college, even though he's not like a natural ally. I wouldn't say of like the trade. Well, maybe it was of the trade unions, 
Well, you wouldn't think so. You know, he's not like a union firebrand. But because the leadership of the trade union in Wales, like Andy Richards and the people who get their votes counted so heavily in the Electoral College, they're so bound up and so desperate to keep the system as it is that I think they're going to go balls out, basically, and just back Vaughan Gething. And then everything rides on Labour Party's, in Wales, internal like democracy review, which they pick like Paul Murphy, like the former... Is he the Welsh? No, well, whatever that guy. Is. But he's like ultra Blairite, right? Paul Murphy. So Paul Murphy could welcome out and just say, "Listen, we see no need to change." Because I think people assume that like one member, one vote was going to happen, and like you know, the Welsh Labour Party is like inexorably, inevitably going to democratise, just like the Scottish Labour Party and the Welsh Labour Party. But no, these are people who are completely shameless. Like they don't care about upsetting people. Firstly, there's no negative media coverage. So if they just say, "Listen, we're going to stick to the electoral college," thanks very much. They will. There's, there's no there's no ramifications. The party never breaks away. People in Welsh Labour, even who are socialists on the left, are so weirdly partisan that there's they'll never leave the Welsh Labour Party. There's nothing the Welsh Labour Party could ever do that you know would make them leave. So if the internal democracy review is a whitewash, which it could well be, you know we can have Vaughan Gethin as a imagine how bad that would be. I've never seen a more arrogant, empty individual in my entire life. Like he just believes in absolutely nothing. It's just. He's just eloc- he's just a walking elocution lesson. Wow. I mean, it's a classic path, you know, president of the National Union of Students. It's the ultimate Blairite route to power. Student politics, learn how to, like, stab people in the back, learn how to toe the line and, you know, be completely inoffensive and shill for the establishment and then walk into a, a safe Labour seat. It's the way of every single Blairite MP. Like, the NUS is the path, and that's what Vaughan Gethin did. Just a hellish future we face. Yep. We're joined today by Leanne Wood, the leader of Plaid Cymru and, according to statistics, the most visible and by far the most popular political leader in Wales. Welcome, Leanne. We're here today to talk about Leanne's pamphlet and, I guess, blueprint for the future of Wales. It's a document called The Change We Need, A Democratic and Empowered Wales. So, Leanne, why did you write this document? I felt that there was a lot of despair in the aftermath of the referendum decision to leave the European Union. And many people were, especially then after the election of Donald Trump in the United States as well, were in a a state of dismay, um, not knowing where to go. There was confusion about the direction that we should take next as Wales, as the the national movement within Wales. Our pitch had always been for an independent Wales in Europe and suddenly that uh, option seemed to have been removed from us. And I've always believed, as um, Raymond Williams has always believed as well, that you have to offer hope in politics. It can't just be about despair. So I set about trying to think about what it was in terms of our values and our principles in our history as a party that we could apply to the problems that we face uh, today. And it took me a lot of work to put this pamphlet together. It took me almost a year to write it. In the middle of writing it, there was a UK general election, which changed things again. Um, So I had to put it all in the bin and start all over again, (laughs) which was quite frustrating. But it just is, is... indicative of the fast pace 
of politics that we've been in really since since that referendum. Um, so I spent a lot of time putting it together and condensing it down into the 32 pages that it is. And what I hope I've produced is a document that could, um, if people were prepared to apply the principles, offer us a way out of the grim political situation that we find ourselves in by saying, look, in Wales, we're a decent enough size to be able to do things for ourselves. We can be nimble, we can be agile, we can respond to people's situation. But we've got to do that ourselves. We can't expect others to do it for us. We have to end our dependence on others and get to that point where decisions about Wales have to be made in Wales. And it's not just for some abstract reasons so that we can just have a, a mini UK on a Welsh level. That's not the point of this at all. It's so that we can do our politics completely differently to the way it's being done now, so that we can put people at the centre of that and that we can strive for a society that is, that is much more equal, empowered and democratic than the one that we live in now. Well, this is really far-reaching document in scope as you say it sort of covers everything it's a you know, political economic document it diagnoses Wales's economic <coughs> problems offers economic solutions but the interesting thing about it it goes beyond it's not just like narrow these are things we do to improve the economy it's about different ways of organizing the community different ways about thinking about how we do politics you know there's it's almost like cultural political economy it's just a really interesting document and it's also the only political document I've read ever in, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just the best one, and the other yeah. one. Um, but it's interesting. Obviously, you, you know, you said about Raymond Williams. It cites Raymond Williams. It cites Naomi Klein. It cites Noam Chomsky. It cites a lot of radical thinkers. Um, and yeah, it's just it, it's just a very interesting. It's a very very radical document, I would say. Um, and something Nathan and I were saying, something that needs to be full national discussion about this. Mm. Staple at the people's faces. Like, yeah, something yeah. like that. Or just so, I was thinking maybe go through it. Oh, no, before we do, are there any any particular inspirations? I've said those the big thing because you cited. Was there anything you read that thought, right, I've got to put this in there? Or was there any like political movement or moment that has inspired you to do this? Are you angling to be mentioned? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a podcast, small podcast. Uh... <laughs> I think... I think um... What I've tried to do here is to pull together everything that I find has got some sort of solution or good analysis for, for where we are. So the the people cited in here, you know, your Chomsky, your Naomi Klein, Raymond Williams, they're all similar thinkers, really, in terms of offering uh, solutions, but they're collective solutions, they're cooperative solutions, they're not corporate reliant solutions they are uh, about trying to use the power of people and um, thinking about human capital as as opposed to being driven entirely by uh, money of course we've got of money people need uh, wages to put food on the table and all the rest of it but we need other things in life as well and um, certainly government should be driven by more than just money there are societal values that we need to bring back and community collectivity cooperation uh, is all part of that for me. It's interesting because, it, as you said, it's a paradigm-shifting document in in many ways in terms of the way we think about the economy in particular. And as you said, it's almost moving beyond traditional measures like growth and stuff like that and focusing on, as you said, measures of well-being and happiness in the community. And, yeah. But, I mean, I was saying to Nathan, it might be like if you pull a cord, this comes out of Nathan's mind back. But, I mean, some of the principles in you are do seem to be like the decentralised socialism stuff, maybe anarchist influence, but maybe we'll... We'll talk about that a little bit, a little bit later. So I think we just, I just go through the forward. The forward itself is quite 
is really bold. But one of the incidents that jumped out the the forward for me is that you know straight away you talk about independence. You know you say about you know becoming an independent country is one way for Welsh people to become empowered. But what's interesting then you say the, the concept of real independence, which is Raymond Williams' concept, goes further than you know constitutional arrangements. As I said, it gets to this idea of a national attitude and a cultural sort of mm. paradigm shift. Because that was really interesting. Basically, a lot of it is is what I would say a quite a nice, succinct diagnosis of Wales's various maladies, high youth unemployment. I mean, some of it is, whenever you read documents on Wales, it's just uh, so depressing. Um, you know, <laughs> Swansea, for example, had a youth unemployment rate of 27.3% in 2016. You look at the problems of affordable housing. You know, you say Wales has faced a 30-year period of economic stagnation, and you, you put the blame you know, squarely at the feet of the neoliberal paradigm, which is sort of which is everywhere, which moulded everything, including Wales, because I think the interesting thing is that we are trying to break out as not just a podcast, but the people we're talking to is that, you know, there's still this idea that Wales is somehow outside neoliberalism, that, you know, it's like this social Clear democratic conflict. Yeah, and Labour since, have shielded us from yeah, everything. But there is, people take, people look at the Clear Ed Water speech and take sort of the rhetoric Labour use at face value and imagine that somehow Wales is outside neoliberalism, which is bullshit frankly um, Wales epitomizes neoliberalism yeah. I mean it's a classic case of a you know an extractive economy that was then just left dumped um particularly in the you know the post-industrial areas but it had an impact on all parts and and it's just a case of people being exploited and uh, when they needed and then left and and without any hope afterwards so for me that sums up neoliberalism and you know margaret thatcher when she started on this crusade to uh to kill the uh, coal industry back in the 1980s she was informed by these ideas as naomi klein points out in in her book uh, shock doctrine all of these world leaders at the time in the 80s were all reading the same books being inspired by the same um people in the chicago school of economics and so on so you know neoliberalism is at the heart of wales's problems and we have to move on from that and i'm finding um actually great comfort in when when I speak to, to young people in schools and so on, they can see this, they can see the problem and they can see the need to replace those neoliberal ideas and those neo- neoliberal politics with something which is much more much more socialist, if you like. You said the Welsh Government has seen a 5% cut in real terms to its block grants since 2010. And chronic mm-hmm. underinvestment in infrastructure, you know, we've got 1% of all rail expenditure, despite mm-hmm. being 5% of the UK population and holding 6% of the rail routes. Now you said about applied consistently challenging austerity. There's one thing I want to just to clarify. You said on the platform 2015 UK election was to end austerity and to reform the Barnet formula and to Wales to be funded according to need in parity with Scotland, which is where the famous uh, Arthur Gulim, Jeremy Paxman uh, interview occurred, I think. You said that that was dismissed by Labour's fantasy politics. Mm. And I wanted to clarify what happened there because, I mean, my, mem- my, my memory isn't too good. So, so Labour have always claimed that they, they want to reform the Barnett formula. Well, in that election, we went further than reform of the Barnett formula. We said we needed to be um, funded in line with Scotland. There had been the Scottish referendum for independence. Scottish questions were very much at the forefront in the 2015 uh, UK election. And if you remember, the SNP took off uh, in that election. And I was arguing that Wales should be treated in line with Scotland. And that would have delivered for us, I think it was £1.2 or £1.4 billion every year, um, which would have, in effect, enabled us in Wales to end austerity in a very practical sense. That 
that injection of cash. So that was the the argument, and that was dismissed as fantasy politics by Labour in that election. In, in Wales or across the UK? In Wales. It's great, isn't it? Um. It's just what we needed <laughs> at the time, I can tell you. Yeah, all right. So, and and one of the interesting things, I mean, you, you sort of diagnose the problems, which I, th- I think a lot of the people who listen to this podcast will know. And you then instantly you go straight into this idea of, well, confronting racism, basically, which is quite an interesting thing to have so front and centre, given the rise of right-wing populism. I thought it was really refreshing, to be honest. And it's entitled, you know, Blaming the Wrong People, Scapegoating Communities. You document the frightening rise in racial hatred in South Wales, well, across Wales, um, as well as the growing intolerance of linguistic difference, you know, how and we, we can see, obviously, on a daily basis, how Welsh is being bashed around and things like that in the, in the British media. But yeah, you do. You said it. You know, when living standards are fallen and wage, wages flatline, you basically say that you know the media and other people just scapegoat immigrants. I mean, obviously, this is something that has happened in Wales. Why did you think it was so important to to foreground the document with this anti-racism? Well, you pointed to the to the rise of the far right, and I see this as a development not just uh, at home, but I can see it in a, in the United States, in parts of Europe. We've already got someone of the far right in um, government in Austria now, and populism and the far right are not far away from from each other, really. And um, one thing I see as a thread across all of these movements is the big question of immigration. And it is a big question, and it does need dealing with, and pulling out to the European Union is absolutely the worst way to deal with it. I'm not saying that the European Union have got immigration right by a long, long way, but we've got a chance of trying to deal with it in a fair manner by working and pooling our collective uh, resources as, as countries in Europe. So pulling out of the European Union is going to make immigration even more difficult to deal with, um, ironically. But I do think that given immigration has been an issue that has been played on and exaggerated and um, people who are immigrants have been scapegoated to such a large extent that um, it had to be addressed and it's very difficult to have an alternative discussion on this. You get shouted down, you get uh, trashed on social media, you you get all kinds of abuse for just trying to say, let's have a different approach to the way we talk about immigrants and people who come to live here. You know, there are benefits to our economy from people coming in and working in the <coughs> NHS and, and in other uh, industries. Look at the way that the agricultural sector is going to be harmed this summer because there aren't enough people to pick their produce. Now, I'm not saying that I want those people to come here because wages uh, are kept low that way and we can exploit those people. I'm not saying that, but I do think that by taking on this attitude where we all have to try to hate immigrants in some way or another is just creating the breeding ground for um, far-right politics to turn into something much nastier um, and head towards fascism. And that's why I think we've got to take a strong stand against it. I mean, that was so interesting. I mean, you actually, you openly say, you know, you cite the Neil Faulkner's book, Creeping Fascism, Mm. and you say, you know, the right are currently reading from the fascist playbook and, you know, we're ignoring the lessons we should have learned from history. And there are, you actually say, you know, explicitly there are parallels between today and 1930s Europe. Just briefly deviating from the document, to what extent has your views on like this immigration debate and stuff been formed by your experiences, like in the Ronda and campaigning and talking to people? To what extent, how, how how central is it to people's? You know, when you talk to people on the doorstep, is it something that you come Pe- up against? Yeah, yeah. People raise it a lot, and it's because they make the link between reduction in wages, standards of living, 
general amenities and public services in the area and the increase in the numbers of people from different countries who they see amongst themselves. Um, that's not been helped by politicians drawing those direct parallels um, as well. And once you can have that conversation with people, once you can say, well, look, you know, some of these problems could be overcome by different solutions. You could um, raise the, the minimum wage. You could ensure that people had be- better trade union protection, that, that trade unions um, were able to ensure that terms and conditions were equal right across the board regardless of what the country of origin of, of the worker involved so there are ways of addressing the problems that have been uh, thrown up by free movement of labor and you know it's it's something that the eu wanted because it ha- it was an opportunity to drive down labor costs that's why they did it so let's not be naive about what it was all about but the concern I have is about the tone and the uh, attitude towards those individuals who come to Libya because it's not their fault that they were exploited. We should be standing shoulder to shoulder with those people against that exploitation and not be prepared to feed narratives that divide people because, as Neil Faulkner's book points out, you know, once you allow those narratives to, to stick that's when you start having serious problems with people. And the other parallels, you know, for me are um, related to religion. You you just look that poster, the quintessential poster in the referendum campaign where um, Nigel Farage stood in front of that um, poster which depicted uh, refugees on it was exactly the same as propaganda photographs that were used um, by the Nazis. Uh, then they were talking about the, the Jews. Now the hint is that the Muslims are all coming to get us. And it's the same lines, the same um, buttons are being pressed on people, the same emotions are being brought to the fore. And it can only end up in an ugly place if we don't confront it. In terms of the practical, I mean, I guess jumping forward in the document, but I guess it's still relevant to you know, the practical steps you take as a society to create this sort of sense of solidarity and shared humanity that you're trying to achieve. You cite political education and mm. the idea of creating sort of like a Welsh sense of Welsh citizenship. So to what extent do you tie those two together? Presumably the Welsh, my reading of it is that the Welsh citizenship, the, the inclusive sort of notion of citizenship that you articulate in page 19 you know that you said this is going to help promote equality and community cohesion because one of the interesting things as we know is that there isn't really yet a civic welsh identity there's not really a sense of welsh citizenship obviously my research day-to-day is on education in schools mm. looking at the welsh baccalaureate citizenship education <clears throat> and one of the interesting things is a citizenship well firstly the welsh government got rid of the welsh component of the Welsh baccalaureate back in 2015 no no one knows why but they do you know the kids do learn about global citizenship <clears throat> albeit they don't really think they learn about values and stuff what's missing to all the debates if you look at the the policy documents the Welsh government produces the Welsh baccalaureate curriculum and even you know the new successful futures curriculum in schools people talk about citizenship a lot without ever defining what it is in general but also what it would mean in a Welsh context and it's quite hard to have a sense of citizenship when the Welsh government doesn't have many powers when we don't have a really strong Welsh media to articulate what it is to be Welsh. So do you think there's a deficit in sort of understanding what it means to be Welsh at the moment? So you know, it does develop in this cohesive... I'm rambling, I'm sorry, but like, you know, this... Ke- I'm trying to, like, for, for me, because I agree, I think that developing a cohe- cohesive civic sense of Welsh identity is one way of, of heading off this sort of... Like that in Scotland. It, exactly, yeah. That's um, it, basically. 
isn't it? I mean, the, the, there's no question about what Scottish, being Scottish means. There's no question about what a Scottish sense of civic identity is. And there's no confusion about who is welcome to be a Scottish citizen. And um, I feel that because there is a greater level of political education in schools in Scotland than it has been for a long time, Scottish citizens are much more aware of their political system and how they can influence it and how they fit into it as well. And so it seems to me that that has resulted in citizens taking responsibility for improving their country. And, um, and I think that's one of the reasons that we saw such strong support for a yes vote in the Scottish referendum was that sense now and and you know this is not something that we can achieve quickly and easily but this is really what I mean by real independence is the attitude that comes with being fully informed and choosing to end your dependence and do thing more things for yourself for yourself and education can achieve that but you can also achieve it in other ways in the pamphlet I talk about um, uh, social movements coming together in communities to overturn uh, in a practical way some of the decisions that have been made as a result of austerity and through that process the sense of civic responsibility that grows among people who form a group and achieve um, uh, the reopening of something or whatever it is, um, even if it's just setting up a youth club or a film night, anything really, there is, you see the, the process of people engaging in a, a kind of civic way. And it's really interesting, but it's also, it helps to build communities as well in a practical way. So so I think there's there's a number of ways you can do it. Yes, for young people in schools, let's do that as soon as we can. But for those people who've left school, there's still ways of, you know, becoming and understanding and embracing Welsh citizenship through your own community, I think. I mean, the statistics are all there as well. But I mean, just for the listeners, in terms of, you know, we know that people of black minority ethnic uh, backgrounds in Scotland are far more likely to feel Scottish than mm. black minority ethnic uh, people in, in Wales. And in Wales, basically the majority of people from minority backgrounds just simply don't feel Welsh or if they do they feel they feel far more British and that's obviously because of the deficit we've got in Wales and you know media education and the sense of who we are really so as you said they're all linked we'll go back then the threats to Welsh democracy I mean you you, you basically one of the interesting things that jumped out to me was that you said that the assembly is seen by many as being unable to deliver any serious or substantial change one of the problems I've got with people in it's not a problem, but the people of the Welsh National Movement, I think almost there's a naivety that, you know, we hear these polls that, you know, devolution is the settled world of the people. And that's just like, for example, that doesn't chime with my experience. People aren't particularly positive about devolution. It's almost wishful thinking to think they are. But you kind of confront that here, which I thought was interesting, you know, you being implied because it would almost, you'd almost think that people implied have a vested interest in imagining that devolution is a settled will. I mean, do you think, I mean, how much of a problem do you think that is? And, and what... I mean, and why is it? I was going to do the monkey and playing the violin bit badly, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, <laughs> but do you, I mean, do you, is that something that people are implied or aware of? Would you say? I mean, I just wouldn't have associated with a Plaid Cymru document, frankly. I wouldn't. I mean, because for me, Plaid are associated with devolution and that, yeah, that wishful thinking almost. So it was interesting to just sort of confront the problem and say devolution isn't universally popular and the assembly is seen as to, to blame for a lot of things. Well, I think we've got to confront reality. I mean, we've had devolved government for 20 years. We've had the same party running that government for 20 years, albeit with um, some uh, coalitions in the middle. And, you know, it's not as good as it could be. And 
I know, uh, because I sit there every day and I listen to the arguments and I listen to the debates, I know that the problems that people are facing are not able to be solved by um, the the po- policies instituted in the National Assembly because the levers are just not there. And it's a sense of frustration, really, um, because what is politics about if it's not about trying to solve people's problems? So... Um, if we were happy with devolution as it is and our assembly as it is, our job is done. We don't need to do any more. We could just become one of the other parties. But um, the point of Plaid Cymru, I would contend, is to keep pushing until our dependence is ended completely, until we can do uh, everything that we choose to for ourselves. Now, obviously, there are going to be some uh, powers and things that we want to pool with other people because, as I've just mentioned, the um, immigration crisis in Europe, for example, climate change is another one. These things are just too big and too global for us to be dealing with alone. Um, so, But it should be a matter for us to self-determine what powers we want to share with others and who. And it shouldn't be for others elsewhere to decide what we can and we can't decide for ourselves, as is happening at the moment. Do you think that people in the Welsh Government understand how the Welsh Government is perceived throughout Wales? You know, do you think they're aware of the fact that you know people don't know who the first... Like, their MP or AM is, or people don't know who Mark Drakeford is. Do you think that they care or no? I mean, do they? Does anyone care about Mark Drakeford? No, no. But to us, it seems. I mean, to us, it seems fairly obvious that the Welsh government aren't doing a good job. But I mean, I've had conversations with other people who would would almost be, you know, horrified at that thought. So I'm just interested because, you know, as you said, you sit there every day. Do you think they're aware of the potential for like a backlash against devolution? Because I think that's one of the forms populism could take in yeah. Wales. Yeah, will come in the form of, you know. Let's just get rid of the devolution. Mm. I mean, we know the anti the Bolish Assembly Party got forty thousand votes. But British down. nationalism is on the rise, isn't it? Yeah. So the logical conclusion to that is pulling out of Europe and then mm. um, ending devolution as well. That's where the the pressure is going to come. So that is a reality as far as I see it. Um, I'm not convinced that the Welsh government is is that in touch with people really. You know, I, I get staggered, like, for example, I asked the First Minister before the devolution referendum to work with me to pull together civic society to try, try and make sure we had a campaign to step into after the Assembly elections were out of the way. And he was really complacent and didn't see that Brexit would ever pass, that Brexit vote would ever pass. So there was no um, trying to predict the vote that we had and there was no planning for it and then as a result everything's been thrown up in the air uh, as a result and everything's been focused on that now been focusing away from all those other issues that are concerning people like the long weights that they've got to endure in A&E departments and in other aspects of the health service, like the lack of underfunding, like the changes in the school uh, system that means that people have got to travel further to go to school, all these things that people are in despair about uh, and not receiving any attention at a political level because we're all swallowed up now chasing our tails of trying to deal with Brexit without having planning planned for it beforehand. So I think those those threats are real um, and I think that we need to be a lot less complacent uh, than the government is uh, about it. But my answer to the threat in rising British nationalism is not to retreat into it or give an inch to it, but to strengthen our national institution, to give it more clout, more beef, more powers, so that it can actually deal with the problems that people face, um, and people are not left frustrated looking at a national institution that is ill-equipped to, to solve our problems. A little bird tells us that the, the chief economist for the Welsh government didn't model for a, a leave vote, but we'll, we'll move on. Um, 
one of the interesting things, and going back to what we said about you know, maybe is this is this secretly an anarchist document? But the elephant in the room for Plaid is you know Plaid are obviously a left wing socialist party. You're obviously an ardent socialist with you know I say great political principles. And the elephant in the room is that people are always saying, well, you know, is it Plaid or Corbyn? Because the, ostensibly for some people the the values are the values are the same. But what's interesting in this document, you sort of take on Labour's centralist version of socialism, which you say is paternalistic and creates a democratic deficit. And then you distinguish Plaid socialism by saying that Plaid socialism is decentralist community socialism and real democracy. You say decentralist socialism, Plaid Cymru, is the opposite of British centralised socialism and therefore an alternative to the top-down undemocratic model which has been embraced historically by British Labour. Decentralist socialism has been one of the core aims and the constitution of Plaid Cymru since the 80s, following the failure of the centralising policies of Labour during the late 1970s, which led to the election of Thatcher in 1979. So that was interesting, because Stuart Hall says exactly the same thing in the 70s. He says that the, the welfare state was so unresponsive and so bureaucratic and cumbersome that, that people did feel like it was imposed on them in some ways, and that he, he actually argues that that did pave the way for Thatcherism. So tell us what decentralised you know, decentralism means to you. Well, it means um, people in their communities taking responsibility uh, for as much as is possible. Now, that's not everything. But if we can devolve decision-making down to the lowest possible level, proper subsidiarity, then I believe that better decisions are made because uh, people are more likely to make better decisions in their own interests. Now, that needs to be balanced. Pure decentralism is is difficult to argue for when you believe in a national uh, unity project. So I think that the decentralism has to be balanced with national objectives, which then are delivered on a decentralist basis uh, locally. So, for example, we can't have some communities uh, agreeing to bring back the death penalty for certain crimes. <laughs> that would I mean, happen, though, wouldn't <laughs> it? Yeah, but if you had pure decentralisation, you could argue that that could be something that you could hand over to people. Um, so, I, you know, there's a conversation to be had about where the balance of that power should lie. But in principle and in general, I think the more decision-making communities can make on their own behalf then uh, the better decisions are going to be made as a result. We were saying like uh, on the drive up here that um, the uh, Wales's geography almost lends itself to decentralisation. Mm. With you know, like you have a lot of just built Dispersed up commu- communities. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly, exactly but, that. But yeah, well, you've just answered, that, I guess. In a way, you know, in the news, Wales has twenty-two local authorities, and it's sort of bloated. What would you say if someone said, you know, well, well Wales is already like quite localised, and that's been a problem? Because I obviously agree with the principles of decentralized socialism, but then you think, well, traditionally you've got like labor fiefdoms and like labor barons and things. How would you how do you avoid that? You know, how do you avoid? Well, I think that's part of the dependency. I think that's part of dependency culture, where we've just assumed that a group of people in in um, in the town hall will make decisions on our behalf, and sometimes they make good decisions, sometimes they make decisions that. And not in our interests, but their own interests. Well, we need to take that power from them and um, and decide more for ourselves. And that's a way of ending our dependence, I would say, becoming more independent as individuals, as communities, and ultimately as a nation. We'll go on to the you know you say Plaid Cymru wants a democratic revolution, and you say for us democracy comes first. You know, in line with our decentralist vision and the values and principles outlined, we want to see people and communities empowered through political and economic democracy. We want to build a Wales where every community has a stake in its own natural resources, where every person is encouraged to set up their own enterprise, 
And I thought that was really interesting. You know, this idea of, it's, as you said, it's essentially, and you said, like, be the change you want to be. It's this prefigurative politics of basically people doing stuff themselves. Mm. And one of the most interesting things, you you, know, you use the case study of Mondragon in the Basque Country as a way, um, which if you haven't heard, you should look it up. It's a sort of a workers' cooperative. And then sort of, bam, jumping out the page, it says, Plaid Cymru wants to make it easy for the workforce to buy their company and run it as a workers' cooperative if it's a risk of closing. You say if the community has a low standard of housing, you know, Plaid Cymru wants to see housing associations be able to be owned and run by the tenants. You know, a public owned investment bank will make it easier for communities to set up renewable energy cooperatives and social enterprises, which is very similar to, you know, what the TUC industrial strategy says. So tell us a bit about this, you know, the idea of, you know, workers actually taking control, because that, for me, is the core of changing political, you know, changing the political culture and well is encouraging people to get involved. Talk us through the, these idea of cooperatives. Well, the thinking is that so much of our problems economically today are as a result of um, money leaking out of the economy left, right and centre. And now, when you've got companies like Uber and uh, Deliveroo and all these other um, companies that are created to provide a service to people, but there's nothing going back into that local community. That's exactly the wrong way to go. We need to be creating work opportunities and businesses for people that enable them to lock the money that they earn back into the community that they live in. And so I propose in this pamphlet a a range of measures to try to do that, including um, procurement. But the key thing is, is the workers themselves owning their own their own companies, because uh, what we've seen over the last 20 or 30 years is that uh, you get a company invests here, they get government grants. While everything is favourable to them, cheap rent, low wages and so on, they stay. As soon as that situation changes, they up sticks and leave and then communities are left devastated. If those um, companies are owned by people in their own local communities, producing something that those local communities need, whatever that is from community uh, regeneration through to caring services, whatever then those companies are not likely to up sticks uh, and leave and they are much more likely to be employing people uh, in the local community where they then spend their wages back in the local community and the whole thing powers uh, around. Fantastic. You know, basically Soviets. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> We've got a bit on gulags. So. <laughs> um, but lastly, you know, democratising our government, you, you know, I'm pleased that you said about you know, the reform of the voting system to you know, introduce proportional representation. Do you think that's going to... How optimistic are you for that to happen? Because I know there is a, a push at the moment for full PR in Wales. Yeah, the um, Laura McAllister report is excellent. And um, really, if th- that could be implemented in full, would deliver a transformation to our National Assembly that then would create the conditions for us to be able to have a proper parliament which was able to have the powers it needs to deliver the solutions for people. So I very much hope to see those recommendations implemented in full. We are going to see votes at 16, which is good. Um, I I believe very strongly and have argued for a long, long time for that. But I think proportional representation does a number of things. First of all, it ensures that there is true proportionality and representation as people want it to be. But it secondly allows us to have a properly diverse parliament 
It enables us to have equal representation of men and women, for example. And I think that if there was a bigger assembly, it would create the opportunities for people from black minority ethnic backgrounds, for example, and from other discriminated against groups. So I um, think it's a very good idea to to implement those those recommendations as quickly as possible. The block, as I understand it, is Labour. But let's wait and see how things develop in terms of their internal uh, elections. And maybe we will see some light at the end of the tunnel eventually. A couple of other interesting initiatives. People's participation in budget setting. I thought that was really interesting. To what, what scale would you view, what scale would you like that to be on? I mean, like national, town council or all? I think it should be up for discussion. It should certainly start at the community level. Um, I think it could happen at a national level as well. I've been inspired by what's been happening in Porto Alegre mm. in um, Brazil, yeah. and they've shown exactly how it can be done. They've been doing it for a long, long time now. I'm not saying they get it right all the time, but um, certainly the idea of bringing great numbers of people together to decide budget priorities is definitely the way to go if you want to improve your democracy. In terms of money, you said about austerity. I just wanted to briefly touch on some of the ways you've got of clawing back money is you know cutting you know, independent whales wouldn't spend as much on defence. Mm-hmm. That was what I thought was quite interesting. Um, and the other one is clawing back unpaid tax. I got that right, yeah? Well, avoided tax. tax. Uh, yeah, so mm-hmm. claw back avoided tax. But there are some really interesting things like so linking changes in politicians' pay to changes in public sector pay. So <laughs> if that was me, I'd be like sort of making sure that public sector workers got raises all the time well so that's the answer that, isn't it? that's yeah. the point I mean public sector workers have had um, uh, pay freezes now or through austerity I don't think that would have happened if they had pay had been linked to politicians pay politicians pay hasn't been frozen has it yes well, so you actually think it is that simple as, as they yeah well I guess I guess it is of course um, so you said I mean highest earners pay fair tax and corporate tax and other avoidance loopholes are closed as it stands the Welsh government basically gives one of Wales' richest man, Terry Matthews, just like handouts all the time for all of his different schemes. Reinvestment of money raised in, in tax into infrastructure, public services staff, index wages, so the lowest and highest paid posts in an organisation are linked to each other in a ratio, and tax breaks for mutuals and cooperatives and things like that. Do you want to wrap up now? Yeah. Can I interject with a joke I just thought yeah, of? Push it, man. Uh, what do you call communist Lego? I don't know. Soviet blocks. Oh, that's pretty good. Um, <laughs> Thanks so much, Leanne. As is custom, do you have any shout-outs? So I'll just give a shout-out to Plaid Bank. There's a fantastic group of young people active in politics. Yes, they are angry about the way things are, but they're turning that anger into a positive direction. So I want to say die down to Plaid Bank. Keep doing what you're doing. And the, the women's officer, Polly Manning, who is <laughs> our, our comrade and presenter. Polly's doing a superb job. There we are. Well done, Polly. <laughs> Thanks very much, Leanne Wood. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Leanne. So that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you very much for listening. A shout out to my sister-in-law, Sarah, and my brother, Tim, for producing an amazing new niece, Ellen. Just been a really good week. Thanks to my family to give me a nice birthday week. And, oh, yeah. Happy birthday. Cheers, bro. Uh, yeah, nearly 30. Can't believe it. Like. Yeah. <laughs> um, done so much. And shout out to Adam and Len and Seb and... Uh, names escape me, but... And the lovely people at People's Assembly Cardiff invited me to do a talk the other day that was awesome felt good to actually meet people in person and, and chat about populism and socialism and so on it's really good to see how energised people are uh, I've got a shout out for the film Hereditary which is brilliant and unsettling it gave me the heebie-jeebies and that's it uh, we'll see you all very soon bye bye I don't need-
need my meds anymore, Hannibal. I'm free for the first fucking time. Why can't you just be happy for me, man? If you happy, then I'm happy. I'm happy. I'm happy. Look at me. Do I not look happy? Do I not look happy? This is the face of a happy person. Hey, Eric, look at me. Bitch.